that really sets the difference for me. That's the differentiating factor between an entrepreneur and somebody who owns a business. Because you can give an entrepreneur, you know, a set of Legos and a bunch of other random things, and they'll figure out how to make it into a business, whether or not they, it was their idea or not. And so I'm a serial entrepreneur. I, I'm not business agnostic because I believe my business methodology works everywhere. I'll go do anything. Welcome, everyone, to The Ultimate Shift. Join Ephraim Glick and leading figures in business and entertainment as they share their stories of regular people overcoming tremendous obstacles only to achieve happiness, success, and fulfillment. Are you ready to make the ultimate shift in your life? Welcome back to The Ultimate Shift. Today we have the one and only Tommy Walford back in the house. We've had you on before. I forget which episode. I should have looked it up. But uh, I had a lot of great feedback from our last episode. Oh, thanks, um, man. So Tommy, for the ones who haven't heard about Tommy before or listened to our previous one last year, Tommy is a serial entrepreneur who has founded several companies. You have bought and flipped companies and sold them again and currently... Correct me if I'm wrong, but your main thing that you're working on is called LeadFast. Yeah. So the LeadFast company comes out of all those experiences, you know, man, like, and you know my story, but for your, your other folks that are out there that may have, hadn't listened to the last podcast, you know, we made all the mistakes early on, right? And I'm always, if you're around me long enough, you'll hear me say, there's only two ways to learn in life, mentors and mistakes. And so we made all the mistakes. And so we decided that we would take our business model that makes us successful and multiple streams and different kinds of businesses. We just have a set of principles that we go by and I wrote them all down. We built some curriculum around them. And now we spend our time training and equipping other entrepreneurs, organizational leaders, people who run nonprofits, CEOs, executives all over the nation, church pastors, believe it or not. And we go out and train them how to lead staff development. We go out and teach them how to make leaders out of the people around them. And, uh, because that's that's one of the like three legs in the stool of like what a good business is. You've got to have good culture and that always rises and falls with leadership. And so that's what we do now, man. And LeadFast is going well. It's, we're growing uh, and we're, we're coming to Nashville soon, which is exciting. So I get to spend more time up here with you. Amen. So Tommy is from uh, Augusta. So he, but he, he will travel anywhere to help anyone is one thing I've <laughs> ever realized. I, I will say you're, you're one of the most giving people I know, meaning uh, for me, I've reached out to Tommy multiple times. I've reached out to you and you just, you're, you're always willing to share your thoughts, your time. You would drop everything at uh, the drop of a hat and you'll, you'll come, you'll drive six, what is it? Six hours? It's to six Nashville. hours here. Yeah. Six hours to Nashville to support a charity. Uh, you're one of the most giving people I know. I have great, tremendous respect for you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Like it's, I'm a, I'm a byproduct of people who gave, you know, like when I didn't know what I was doing with my business and our first business, we randomly got a phone number from this guy and he's, he's maybe never hear this. His name's Dwayne Rapson. He's based in Atlanta. He had a huge commercial AC unit, uh, air conditioning and HVAC company. And he was super, super wealthy and uh, was part of the Atlanta technology angel development. We were building software and uh, I cold called him and was like, Hey, like I, you don't know me, but God, I need some help and I'm drowning in my business. And he took a lot of time. He actually came to Augusta one day and like spent, 10 hours with me and my co-founder and just helped us figure it out. And uh, so like, I've been really fortunate to have like random guys step into my life. And so 
I know the impact of that. And so for me, it's just about like, how do I do that too? That's, um, a, that's amazing. And you cold called this guy. You didn't know him from any, he didn't know you. Didn't have a, yeah, no, I just, I randomly got his number and thought, you know, we're, we can die with knowledge or we can die without. And so I'm going to give it a shot and give this guy a call. We drove to Atlanta for our, I asked him to go to dinner. Uh, I told him I'd buy him dinner. We went to uh, one of those Brazilian steakhouses because in my mind at that time, when we were eating ramen noodles, like that was the most cool place you could go. And so we went to some Brazilian steakhouse in Atlanta and literally spent probably half of the money we had remaining in the bank to take this guy out to dinner because we just so dramatically needed help. And it wasn't, we knew we didn't need finance. Like you could have given us a million dollars and it would have still, we, we knew we would have set it on fire because we didn't know what we were doing. And he stepped in and really said, Hey guys, you don't have a business. Here's what's broke. And these three things, and this is what needs to get fixed. And you got to figure this part out. And when we started focusing on the right things, everything kind of came into focus, but we, without him, like, and we probably haven't spoken in 10 years. He was just like this weird guy that kind of like stepped in and aligned everything and then stepped back out and was great, but I'll be forever grateful. That's incredible. You said something the other night that, and I've known you for a year or so now, and I, I didn't even know this. I've never heard you put it in those words. You said, I went from being on food stamps to a millionaire. And what was that period of time? Um, it was, it was 18 months or something. 18 like months. Yeah, was... So, so if a couple of things to that, if someone's on food stamps right now and they are struggling in their business, maybe, maybe they don't have the systems. Maybe they don't have a business. Like you're saying, this guy told you, what's the first thing? What's one thing that they need to stop, look at and, and maybe What's one thing they need to look at in their business idea or whatever they're working? Oh man. So for me, so businesses or all organizations only ever have like three things that you should worry about ever. And if you're a entrepreneur by yourself, you're a solopreneur, you're out there just trying to start your business then you really don't really have culture to worry about. Cause that's the first thing. Culture is the, it, culture is like oxygen. If you've got bad culture, nothing survives. It doesn't, doesn't matter how good the thing is, culture chokes it out. Like, so if you don't have good culture, it's just, it's hard to be in business. Uh, and so if you're a solo entrepreneur, all you've got to really manage is yourself. And so that's, you know, a little bit what we call hustle culture. I saw this crazy meme the other day and it said, have you ever seen a crackhead complain about not having money? It said, no, they always figure it out. Are you going to let a crackhead out hustle you? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so true. Like crackheads, like they'll beg for money. They'll steal for money. They'll do whatever, but they'll get the resources they need for the thing. And I've never heard one complain like, oh, I'd love to have crack, but I just don't have the resources. Like crackheads out hustle everybody. And so like, if you are a solo entrepreneur, all you really have to manage is your time. I guess the one resource that you have that Bill Gates has that Warren Buffett has, everybody gets the same 24 hours in a day. They just are better with their time than you. And so you can't get out hustled outside of that. You're not really have to worry about culture. The other part of that is commitment. Are you getting people to make commitments to your business? Are you getting buy-in? Are you making sales? What's that look like? And we have a program. I mean, Lead Fast Code is designed to give people. I think the last time we were here, we talked about attraction, interest, conversion, mm -hmm. buy-in. Yes, yeah. So like that's the go back and listen to the other podcast and get the long, the long version. But like I would go into their business model and go, all right, well, where are you failing in this process? Because this process is every business. Mm -hmm. 
There is no difference in selling oranges or selling software. It's the same thing. And then the last thing, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs make this, don't get this last piece is that it's courage. So you get culture and you get commitment, but the last piece is courage. And courage isn't just being brave. Courage is making the next right step, you know? And so sometimes making the next right step is a crucial pivot. Sometimes making the next right step is stopping altogether and, you know, not dying along with the ship, not going down with the ship, but preserving the lessons so that you can move into the next thing. You know, our first business almost bankrupted us and was complete failure. The last 11 have been amazing. Mm -hmm. It's because we were smart enough to shut that down, take the lessons we learned, and then go into the next thing with more momentum rather than being completely burnt out because we just wouldn't give up on it. You've got to know when to put the dog down sometimes. You right. know, like I'm from the country for everybody that's out there. Just don't call the ASPCA. I wasn't saying <laughs> euthanize animals. It's a phrase. Uh, it's, it's a colloquialism from my, my childhood. But you've got to be able to something. You've just got to know when to put it down. You've got to like take your hands off of it, give it up and move on to the next thing that has potential. And that really sets the difference for me. That's the differentiating factor between an entrepreneur and somebody who owns a business. Because you can give an entrepreneur, you know, a set of Legos and a bunch of other random things and they'll figure out how to make it into a business, whether or not they, it was their idea or not. And so I'm a serial entrepreneur. I, I'm not business agnostic because I believe my business methodology works everywhere. I'll go do anything. And so I get really excited when that thing also excites me and it's something I'm into. You know, owning a production studio, which we do now, and owning a podcast studio. And that's really fun because I love creating content. But you know, I go open a dog grooming business tomorrow and it'll do $2 million in its first years. I, I know it will because I'll do my system and I'll own a great dog grooming business. Not excited about that business at all. So let's talk about that. That's, I'm really interested in that. And we talk, I, I ask a lot of people about that on this show. Uh, by the way, don't let me forget. I want to touch about, I want to touch on the value of a business and how you find the value of business before yeah. we, before we end this podcast. But first, Let's jump on. To, I get asked that, by the way, a ton of people call me. Say, how do you value a business? How do you how do you know what it's worth? Uh, no one better than you on that. So let's talk about pivoting and loving what you do. And and as a serial entrepreneur, because I've been the same way, it's like, you know, three years ago, I couldn't have told you a thing about roofing. I didn't know anything about what I do today, but it, it, it the opportunity and and being adaptable to learning other things, I think is has tremendous value. So. When it comes to someone saying, I just want to do my passion. And, you know, I think if I just chase my dreams, my passion, what have you, the money will come. What's your response to that? Probably not. There are markets for a reason because there's desire for the thing that you might be passionate about. So maybe, maybe if you are passionate about something that is a marketable skill, you're passionate about graphic design. Yeah, you could chase graphic design and probably make a living. If you're passionate about basket weaving, the rug making, you want to go make the very best organic rugs in the United States and making out of, you know, wheatgrass and all this. Like, yeah, you're, you're passionate about that. But how big is the market niche for something like that? So, you know, artisans, there's a reason they're called starving artists for a reason. You know, like there, there's a reason they're called starving artists. It's because there's not a market demand for the thing that they're passionate about. So passion and money are mutually exclusive of each other. Really? Um, oh yeah. I've never heard it put that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like so yeah, money, money is money and passion is passion and they are not tied together. 
you can have a strategy for getting money and you can have a strategy for your passion. If they both align, congratulations. You are one of the few people that are cut out to really love success in our world because you're going to be able to do the thing you're passionate about and be in the world's eyes successful. Or you can be super passionate about something and redefine for you what is happiness, you know? So like success for me is about being happy. It doesn't matter how many commas are in my bank account if I'm unhappy and miserable. You know, there's that old joke, I'd rather cry in my Ferrari. But you wouldn't. Like, what's that? You wouldn't really. Why would you be miserable? I'd rather be happy in a Camry than cry in a Ferrari every day. And so it doesn't matter how many commas are in my bank account. For me, success has now been reframed as happiness. Well, that may mean I make less money, but I get to pursue my passion. Well, then great. My passion is helping people. LeafFast hasn't made any money yet. I've just been continuously investing into other people and investing in my business and investing in other people's businesses because what I'm passionate passionate about is helping people. I expect there to be an ROI in that, you know, and I believe that we have a business model that'll work, but it's still proving itself out. If I've learned that it doesn't, I'll quit putting money into something that doesn't have a return and I'll just be the guy that helps people. And you can just get my phone number and give me a call and I'll jump in. But passion and finance are completely exclusive of each other. So when people say like, I just believe if I follow my passion, the money will come. Maybe if there's a market for your passion, Mm -hmm. there's not a market for your passion, then you probably won't succeed if, if you're defining success as the money. Right. So on that, on that note, we're in music city right now. There's, there's, Obviously, as you know, hundreds, and you know, hundreds of them, people chasing music here. And and I don't think there's a right or wrong to when you're chasing music. But let's just say, for instance, you have someone that's that's been here pursuing music for seven, eight years. And they say music has a 10 year period of time. So maybe maybe, maybe they're almost there. Maybe they're not. Maybe they've been chasing music. And this isn't just exclusive to music. It could be anything. But maybe they've been trying to work their passion, what they love to do, and it's not paying off. And how, at what time, how many years is there a, a point in time where you yourself would say, okay, I have put an X amount of years into this. It hasn't brought me the return that I need to have in order to grow going forward. What's that time frame look like for you? Oh, I mean, it, there isn't a time like your pat. So when I hear people like, so I've got, I've got friends here in Nashville, right? And so when I hear people say like, you know, I've been here eight, nine, 10 years, whatever, and I haven't broke yet. And so I'm still just, I feel like I'm in the same place I'm in and those types of things. I'm like, okay, but are you, are, are you passionate about music? Are you passionate about being famous and being recognized for your music? Because those are different things. Cause I can, cause you're probably pursuing a strategy that's music related when really what you're passionate about is fame. And we have the internet, the internet wins always. And so now you can go be famous. You can go, you can go, you can go be famous dancing. Yeah. You can be famous for lots of things, Mm -hmm. but like if you're passionate about being famous and then trying to parlay fame into some sort of monetization, like, well, let's just focus on you being famous. Those are two different strategies. If you are here and you're in Nashville and man, you love music. What's keeping you from doing that? Nobody, nobody, nothing ever. Like you can go get a job and make a living and do music six hours a day. So again, the key point here, your, your job and your passion is not the same thing. No, 
I mean, if you're lucky, sometimes you're good enough at what you're passionate about to meet a market demand that they'll pay you for your passion. But that is like 0.001% of the creative population. You know, look around Nashville. I mean, guys have been playing on Broadway 15 years. Mm -hmm. Never set foot on a tour. Never had a label look at them. And they've gotten to the point where like they enjoy playing on Broadway because they're passionate about playing music and it's so much fun. And they, they get to go do this thing they love every night. I mean, I'm, I am 100% okay with someone who goes and works an eight to five, nine to five, pays the bills, and that facilitates their six to midnight. Like, bro, like, I'm going to clap for you just like I'm going to clap for the person who figured out how to make their eight to midnight make money. Because once you become an entrepreneur, once you figure out that there is a market demand for what you're passionate about, once people start paying you for your passion, it isn't an eight to five anymore. Now it's an eight to midnight. Now you're working both shifts, but I always tell people like, look, if you're not willing to work an eight to five so that you can love a six to midnight, you'll, you disqualified yourself for earning the eight to midnight. Mm. Because if you don't love it enough to do it as a side hustle, you will never love it enough to do it as a main hustle. Because speaking from someone who turned a side hustle into a main hustle, the main hustle is a million times harder. Yeah. All the fun goes out of it. Like you can be super passionate about making music in the moment it has to make money. That rot that like the requirement of, oh, now my album has to be a hit because I took a $300,000 advance from a label and that's got to all get paid back. And we've got to sell so many copies and I got to do so many tours or else I'm not going to be able to do my second album that labels you all this pressure piles on you. And that's true of any business. Yeah. You know, the market demands perfection. And passion overlooks inadequacies. So the market demands what your passion can't provide. I get excited about something. If it's not perfect, it's okay. My excitement overrides the fact that it's not perfect. The market demands perfection. And so you've got to look at that and go, all right, well, my passion is going to have to be super refined, super you know, managed and all this other stuff. And most people can't handle that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Or, or they don't realize the... By the way, it wouldn't have to be musicians. You could be an entrepreneur and you take money from an investor. Now, all of a sudden, all the pressure is there. Heck yeah. And, and it's the same thing. And, yeah. it, and it takes some of the fun out of being an entrepreneur sometimes, which is why I'm always like, just do it on your own cash basis and don't be in a rush. Yeah. If you can bootstrap, do it all day long. Yeah. It, even even going through acquisition, you know, our, first, our second company got acquired for a, a, a lot of money and we had to go as part of that contract. The acquisition, I had to go work for two years for this mm -hmm. other company. And, and, and that was a great experience. And I got to see what it was like. To, I was the uh, senior director of business development for a billion dollar vertical. We had to grow 25% a year. When now I had to go grow our company $250 million in, in income a year. And then the next year they wanted 25% more or whatever it was. And so now it was like so much exponential growth. That was fun, but it was so much pressure. And being going from an entrepreneur where you were the end all be all decision maker to now part of some eight person executive team and had all these other decisions that had to be made and you didn't have you couldn't just robbed all the fun out of running a business. I started two other businesses as a side hustle during that time period because I was missing having fun running a business. So, you know, that you've got to be able to understand that your passion and your profits are not the same thing. I love that laid out like that. I've, I've never heard it explained quite like that, but it makes the most sense. If you were, I mean, I know you were in business last year, but say, let's say you were, you know, in the midst of the grind of starting a new business and then COVID hits, 
How would you adapt? How would you, what would you do? What would you have done if you were just, let's say of all the people out there that are starting, that were starting a business, maybe in 2018, 2019, COVID hits, you know, that might've been getting off the ground and that was you. How would you have adapted to something as big that, you know, touched as many lives and changed the way we did a lot of things last year? Well, that was me. You know, we were starting LeadFast in January. And, you know, I had been traveling and speaking a lot and doing some corporate trainings and that kind of thing. And then COVID hit and all the travel restrictions came in. Well, our entire business model was every time Tommy speaks, hundreds of people in a crowd and there's probably 60, 70 of them that will like, how do I stay engaged? Like you had said something, how do I follow up with you? Can we stay in contact, stay in relationship? And I wanted a methodology to do that. And so we created LeadFast. It was like, all right, well, I'm going to do these once a month Zoom calls. All these hundreds of people can come to these Zoom calls, pay a subscription, come do that. And I'll continue teaching these concepts. And then COVID happened and our entire customer acquisition strategy went out the window because we couldn't travel and speak. Mm-hmm. And that's just now getting to like lighten up and I'm just starting to travel again. But we had to pivot. And so we got into online university and we're like, all right, we're going to one, we're going to own and build a production company so we can do all of, have all of our own resources. We're going to film these classes, but not just like talking head zoom style. We're going to go out and like to the farm and talk about what it means to plant and, and wait for a harvest. So the expect the process of waiting as a business and what that looks like. So we're going to go do that at my farm. And then we're going to do all these other things to make it super interesting to watch. Right. And then, and then we're going to offer it online for a nominal fee to like have subscription co- you know, content. And people took to that. And everybody during COVID was really interested in watching podcasts and, and everybody launched a podcast. It seems like everybody launched a podcast. And we tried to build up our social media presence so that we could reach more people. We had to completely pivot. And then we started, you know, another business in the middle of all that, you know, having a production company. And then we, uh, bought a farm and we were turning it into a wedding venue and all the weddings, all the major like events got canceled for COVID Like you couldn't get, we had restrictions. You couldn't put more than 40 people in a room and stuff like that. And we had to pivot there too. And so we started doing outdoor tinted weddings. We, instead of building a building level graded and sodded the golf course sod, this beautiful piece of an acre in the middle of a field of uh, pasture so that you could get wildflowers surrounding your wedding and a huge, beautiful field with tents. And you could put as many people out there as you wanted. And we just had to pivot. You had to like figure it out. The best thing that we did though, is we said, this is temporary. So we're not going to change our entire mindset, our entire model for a temporary problem. We know COVID is temporary. The economy, the, the, the U.S. economy it's too big to maintain this level of restriction for the, for much longer. We're going to come back. So what, what industries were most affected by COVID that are going to still be around after it's over and overloaded? So for example, the wedding industry in our area, 80% of weddings got canceled and moved to 2021. So we built a wedding venue because all the other wedding venues were already booked for 2021. And now there's this onslaught of too many weddings. And so now we have the ability to go into 2021 with a brand new wedding venue that's not even booked and it's beautiful. So we intentionally bought a farm and turned it into something that was going to crush after COVID. You know, Lead fast is that way where it's like people have been cooped up for an entire year. So all along we were like, we want to teach people and connect with them. But what I, you know, you know me, what I love is like community and sitting down and looking across the table at people. 
And so then it became a really natural thing of people have been looking for community for a year. They're starving to be together in a like like-minded group. Well, let's do city groups for lead fast. And so lead fast Nashville is launching soon and lead fast Augusta and lead fast Denver with Carl, hopefully soon. So Carl, when you're watching, I'm putting you on the spot. So like, that's the, that's the whole thing is like, well, we know what people are going to be demanding post COVID. So we're going to pivot now during COVID and get ready. We're going to, we're going to be expectant that we're doing the right things to come out of this thing swinging. And so if I was a startup and I was starting up and COVID was killing things, I would totally be thinking about COVID as an opportunity because everybody else is trying to survive as a startup. You're already so close to not surviving. You're you're everybody's trying to prevent being where you are. Mm -hmm. Well, you're there. So just slow down because while they're spending their time trying to prevent getting where you are, you have the ability to spend all your time thinking about how to get past them when COVID unleashes everybody back to the world. Right. Which you actually have that opportunity as a startup because a lot of people had a problem with with keeping employees. Do they lay off? Do they do this? Do they do that? As a startup, you're not there yet. Now you can bypass some of that. There's no logistics to pivot. You know, as a startup, as a small company, if you're not, you know, 30 employees and you're not laying people off or anything like that, 30 employees isn't a small company. But if you're, call it sub under a million dollars, you can change the entire business. You know, you just can. And if you said, oh, wait, like, for example... If you, if you had a t-shirt business, I was talking to somebody this morning that really wanted to do a t-shirt business. If you were doing a t-shirt business and you were selling online through COVID and you were like selling like COVID t-shirts or whatever, like cute little like mean t-shirts and you wanted to like get into it now, then I would go look for everybody that's about to go back to work. So I would go look for DJs and musicians and comedians and everybody that, that is a public performer. And I would go, I want to do your merch. You're going to come out of the gate Let's do some really interesting COVID related merch. Like we're going to like, we're back baby for Vegas DJs and we're going to give away t-shirts and sell t-shirts at your shows because that that's something I guarantee you not on their radar for the most part, because they're still trying to figure out how to survive through the end of this and all the other restrictions. But if you came to them and said, Hey, we can right out of the gate, let's go ahead and prepare you for success. And now your t-shirt company has a whole new niche and you're already like partnering with people who you know are going to be in front of hundreds of people. So you don't have to worry about the customer acquisition side of things. They're going to do that for you. Mm-hmm. And now you're just, you're being a provider for someone who needs, who needs something. That's a win. Like that's an example of like, I can pivot the entire business model. I was selling t-shirts online, but I really want to sell 300,000 more t-shirts a month. All right, well, I'm going to go, no, well, I'm going to write Steve Aoki 300 emails until he agrees to hear my pitch. And I'm going to tell him I'll do 10 free t-shirts, but he has to give me the next 10 at cost, like, and make it happen. And it's mutually beneficial. Yeah. You're, you're taking something off his plate that he probably didn't think about. And now you're going to be, and now look at your resume. I, right. I do merch for 50 different bands, artists and comedians, whatever, like, I would love that. Somebody would call me right now and said, Hey, I want to take over lead fast merch and be like, let's, let's have this meeting. Cause I'm don't want to design any of it. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. That's good advice on that. So if, if you are specifically, let's talk about brick and mortar right now, today in an overly inflated industry that obviously cannot sustain itself in, in every way. You look at everything right now is in the inflation is crazy. What steps would you take to protect your business from a short to come, I'm not going to say crash, but 
a pullback in in the system? Well, it, it depends on your market niche. Some businesses aren't protectable. Some businesses are too vulnerable to really have efficient protection. And so if your businesses are super, super vulnerable, you might not survive it. Give an example. If your business is highly leveraged in uh, adjustable rate debt, interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. They're going to go up. And they go up half a percent. And if you're, you know, if you've got a million dollars in adjustable rate, like if you took a second adjustable rate mortgage on your house to get your business through this, and then interest rates go up a point, and now your payments double or triple, and now you don't have enough income coming in from the business to make the single payment, much less run the rest of the business. You're going to lose your business. You're going to default on your second mortgage on your house. Like that, that's that's indefensible. Mm-hmm. You should probably figure out how to save your house first. So let's figure out how, like, what value, like, can you put a valuation on a business and sell it coming out of COVID and get out of that business altogether, save your house, make a little money, put a nest egg away to start the next thing. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, you want a brick and mortar hardware store, for example, like there's a lot of like, you remember Ace Hardware? Like, so there's a lot of like Ace Hardware's around still, like little mom and pop hardware stores. Mm -hmm. If you own a a hardware store, like that's going to be rough because the the key component to every other DIY project is lumber and lumber costs are so expensive that most people are putting off projects. And so now all the, nobody thinks about this, but all the ancillary things don't get sold either. Right. Nails, hammers, drywall, paint, you know, the, the, the markup on lumber is so small anyway, because lumber is so expensive that stores aren't surviving out of lumber. Lumber is like the loss leader. They carry it because everybody needs it. So they can sell you the drywall and the paint and everything else. Well, if nobody's buying lumber, they're also not buying those other things. So that's a, that's a hard, that's a, that's a hard place to be and not anything you can do about it because you can't make lumber cheaper. So you can ride it out. You can, you know, I would be, I would be looking at like super interesting things like, Hey, we want to do a DIY clinic. It doesn't cost you anything, but you're going to like set up some faux walls and teach people how to spackle, you know, like stuff like that. I'd be getting people in to learn how to do things. I'd be educating people so that they would go do the projects anyway. And they would feel more one. They'd feel more confident about doing it. So they're more likely to do it. They would have a positive, a positive feeling about my business because I taught them how to do it. And then I would have the relationship with them so that when they're ready to do it, I could offer them a discount to come in and do it. And then I customer retention then at that point, but I'd be dreaming up all kinds of ways to just get people in the store for educational purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, Hey, bring your wife in and we're going to do a whole, like, let's teach her what socket sets are. Bring your husband in and we're going to teach him how to finally like use a power tool so he can get the lawn done. You know, I'd be, I'd be looking for any kind of way to educate my customer base. I love it. Okay, so you touched on the valuation of a business, so let's talk about that. So how do you value a business? How do you, you know, let's say you've sold companies before. Mm-hmm. So someone comes to you and they say, hey, I've got, I've got a, maybe, okay, let's just use my business as, as an example. You and I have had this discussion even mm-hmm. regarding my specific business. So one of my companies is, is a commercial roofing company. So how do you value a company like that? So every industry has a standard valuation practice. I mean, it's, this is the one out of all my friends that have gone and gotten MBAs and have gone to business school. This is like the one thing that they've come out of business school with that I thought was useful. And, and that's not knocking business schools, but a lot of what you learn is not helpful if you want to be an entrepreneur. It helps you learn to manage other people's businesses, mm-hmm. but not necessarily grow your own. 
but valuation techniques are, you know, pretty specific to industry, but as a rule of thumb, three to five percent, three to five times your EBITDA, so your earnings before interest, taxes and, and assets. And so I didn't say all those things right. But uh, before your evidence, so, like, so once you get to like how much you actually make in a year, like after you pay all the bills and all your interest and earnings and taxes and all that goes through, what you net out, it should be three to five times. Because what you're selling when you sell a business is time. You know, you've already put time in to creating something that's up and running. So someone else acquires you. They don't have to go through what you just went through to get that. And so what you're selling is I've already built momentum and we're running and this is the trajectory we're running on as far as profitability. And if you'll keep doing the things that we're doing or you'll change and pivot some of the things we're doing to increase that, you'll do better than I'm currently doing. But here's what you should expect. And if I'm making money, why would I give this up? The the external motivation for giving up a business that's doing well and running is I want more time. Outside of that, just keep doing it. Right. If it's if your business is netting a million dollars a year and it's and you're living the life that you want, don't ever sell that business. But if someone's going to come value your business and you can say, all right, listen, at the end of the year, at the end of the year, you net a million dollars. That's great. We think we can grow that. We're willing to. We want to buy your business. Well, that should be three to five times whatever that number is on average. That net number. That net number, because what they're buying is your next five years. Okay. You know, and and the only time people make enough money on a purchase to like retire, you know, like I'm going to grow this business, I'm going to sell it and retire on that kind of money is when whatever that number, your retirement index, whatever that number is for you, if it's, you know, a multiple of between three and five of what your business makes. And so if you need $20 million to retire, then your business needs to make on, it needs to net on average seven to $5 million a year. And once it gets seven to five million dollars a year, then it's worth three to five million dollars out of 20, 20 million dollars after on a three to five multiple. So, but that's a standard, that's just standard, right? And so for me, it, and then it goes into like, then you start looking at the intangibles. Like, so that should be like the first rule of thumb, right? The first rule of thumb is this, what, what it's based on, based on your earnings. And then you get to what's called goodwill. And that's important because when you get to actual asset purchase versus goodwill, the IRS looks at that differently. And so they give you one tax tax rate for the actual purchase of assets and what it should be. And then if somebody just really wants to buy, you know, Mid-South Commercial Roofing, they just want it. They want the logo. They want the branding. You've done a good job. Those things are all intangible. So they may be willing to give you 10x what you're worth, you know. Well, that $5 million over that that's just goodwill is going to get taxed at a much higher rate than the other like what you can so the IRS actually values it themselves to a point where well, you have to justify it and you have to like give them a list of the assets. They're going to count your assets and your IP against, you know, anything that you have that's, you know, copyrighted or, you know, protected. They're going to look at that as IP and they're you're going to sign it. You can get somebody to sign a value to that and those kinds of things. But then the stuff that's goodwill. Yeah, it gets it gets taxed at a higher rate. Hmm. It's interesting. I've never thought about that. Of course, that's so, not sort of company either. But so that's but that but then you get into like when you start talking about acquisition, you start like accounting for everything. Well, you know the t-shirts we have are like really nice. So those are two hundred dollar t-shirts. You know, like that. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to start counting every asset. So you try to limit that a little bit. I but, take I take back. I've sold companies, but I've always sold it to interesting enough someone that I knew that we didn't have to go through. You know, we right, just right. agreed that it was worth this, and then went that way. Yeah, and that's. Um, that's a 
that's a thing to do. I think when you get into like much, much higher evaluate valuations of your businesses, but you, you, it needs to be a little bit more concise. But like, even in those situations, if you're a you know, sub $500,000 and you're like, Hey, I got this, I mean, I'm doing a hundred thousand dollars a month in t-shirts online. And somebody comes along and goes, I want to buy that. I'll give you $500,000 for your business. Like the IRS is going to want to know. And so they just are. And you can, you can do it on a handshake and a handshake value and that kind of thing. But if they ever wanted to look into it and go, well, what were the assets that traded hands? They could, they could come and ask. And so you want to, you really want to have a law firm walk through an acquisition with you because that is super important. Right. There's, there's no, there's no organization on the planet like the federal IRS. Them and Jesus, they're the only two people I'm scared of, bro. Like, <laughs> and sometimes it feels like they have the same powers. Uh, the IRS is crazy. I don't, you know, there's not a law in our constitution or on the, there's not a law that's ever been passed that makes the IRS a real thing. Like you have no legal obligation to pay your taxes and yet they can still come take everything you own. So yeah. it's a crazy, crazy world we live in. Yeah, it is. What's the biggest struggle you personally have had in business? Loyalty for one. That's the, that's a big deal. But cause when you don't have a lot, what you have to do is go to people that are friends. Right. And, and ask, you have to go get favors. You have to, Hey, you know, I, you're really, really talented. I know that I can't pay you $70,000 a year to be a salesperson, but would you come work for me for $40,000 a year? And then I'll make it worth your while. Like we'll build you up and we'll get you there and kind of deal that that person's taking a leap. I've had the privilege of working with my friends and family. Our first business that got acquired, you know, we had 26 employees. We were the number three place to work in the state. My best friend, both my parents worked for me full time. All these people from like my community groups were involved in my business and we had the best time working together. But when, you know, you're in those opportunities to work with your friends and family, you really start seeing people for who they are. And so loyalty becomes like a struggle because now you're, it makes you doubt people's intentions and all this other stuff. But having people show themselves to not be loyal is like the hardest thing because when you lose that person, not only do you lose an employee, you lose a friend, sometimes a family member. And that's been, that's been the big struggle. But I always find myself in danger of that because I'm always starting new businesses because I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I'm always roping people into helping and that's part of that process. You have to know that like you are taking the risk of potentially burning that relationship to the ground. You're, you're always in that risk. Most people just don't think about it like that. Mm-hmm. So you might as well work together, but you can always burn a relationship to the ground. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. take very much nowadays. It doesn't always take business either. Yeah. So you're, if you're going to be in that relationship, you might as well do the business together. And then if you win, you get to win together. You know, people yeah. always say don't hire friend, friends and family. Because it stinks when the bad things happen. Well, yeah, but it makes the good things that much Agreed. better. Agreed. And so I, I love working with my friends and family. It's been the greatest honor of my life. When we when our business is won, I won with the people who have been with me the longest and mean the most to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's been And when I lost, I was losing with the people who have been with me the longest and mean the most to me. Yeah. I, I'm in the same boat. I mean, we have uh, – there's – at least one great friend who works with me and my, uh, I have some family who works with me, but I mean, I've found if you take care of people the way you, you would want to be taken care of, you know, they'll, they'll stick with you. And that's, we've, we've got an incredible team. If you had to start, if, if someone stripped you of your name 
your credits, your money, and you were put out on these streets, you're dropped off at Fifth and Union, and you have the clothes on your back, what would you do? I know you're an entrepreneur, so you're going to start a business, but how are you going to do it? What's your well, first step? Well, the first step is survival. If you're going to drop me off as a homeless guy on the side of the street, I'm going to get a, I'm, one, I'm going to secure a mailbox. If I had to, if I, begging for me would be a very temporary problem. Anyway, so I would secure lodging, get a job. Cause you, it's, that's what's hard about being homeless is that you've got to, like, when you go fill out an application at McDonald's, you got to tell them where you live. And if you don't have a spot and you don't have a spot. So it's very hard to get a job. So, I would secure lodging, you know, I, it, me being homeless would be a seven day problem. I would, I would beg my guts off and, and I would beg to work. You know, I'd be, I'd be looking for, you know, can I get on with lawn companies? Can I like show up and mow yards? What can I do? But I'd find lodging, find a job. Cause you gotta, you, you can't be an entrepreneur if you can't eat. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta take care of yourself. Like, People want to say self-care now, but they, they use it as like, oh, I need to get five minutes to go read a book. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like that's not self-care, bro. You got to worry about survival. So I worry about survival first. And then, you know, it's you got to get to the point where you're saving. Uh, like that's it, it's it's not it's it's not a complicated process. It's just hard. You know, it's like baseball. Baseball is not complicated, but it's very, very hard to do. And so being uh, available and being able to show up and go out into the world and be successful is not complicated. It's just hard. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, get a job and then get promoted, make a little bit more money and then get to the point where you can put 10% of your income away in savings until you get to the point where that can launch something. But the internet is undefeated, bro. You can go start a business for nothing, mm-hmm. for nothing. If you had, if you had, if you're listening and you've got $1,500 and you want to make $1,500 a month, if you can put $1,500 together, go buy a vending machine. Just go buy a vending machine. Go lease one. You put $1,500 into the supplies, find a high traffic area that, and go to the business owner and say, I'll give you 30% of the profits if you'll let me put my vending machine here and then put a vending machine up. Your vending machine in a high traffic area will do $1,500 a month all day long. And, you know, and that's like mailbox money. You just show up and restock once a week. Mm-hmm. Vending machines work. They'll just always, like, everybody always wants snacks. So find a, find a Kroger in the middle of nowhere that doesn't have a vending machine on its sidewalk and ask them if you can put one there. And then get two, and then get three, and then get you a vending machine route where you're making 10 grand a month. And you're managing, like, literally, you can do all 10, you can go restock all 10 in a day, and you're working six days, a, six days a month and managing 10 vending machines and you're making eight to 10 grand a month. It's a solid start. Yeah, it's a solid start. And you're and it's not even a solid start. Like who would want not want to make a hundred grand a year working, right. you know, eight days a month? No box money. And super easy. And then you go pay someone thirty thousand dollars a year to run around and manage. Now I'm making seventy thousand dollars a year and I don't work at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And you can do all that from starting on the street. Literally. It, it wouldn't take long to save up fifteen hundred bucks if you're if that's your goal. If you're like I'm going to do everything I can to save up fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, people just get sidetracked. Eat ramen noodles all day, go. every day. Go, go be on food stamps. Listen, if you if you are, and I'll just tell you what my dad told me because I was super embarrassed when I had to go like sign up for food stamps. I sat in the parking lot of the food stamp offices and just cried. Like I just couldn't stomach it. Because this and is after you had success. I had success. Had a fourteen year career. Was very happy. And wife and kid and house and everything and. We got two cars repossessed and then it got real bad. And we're like, all right, we're now on food stamps. 
and just sat and cried and cried and couldn't like couldn't bring myself to walk into the to the building. In fact, my I think my wife ended up doing the paperwork because I just couldn't do it. So I had to go a couple of times and like show up for things, but walking in was too much. And so I finally told my dad and my mom and dad didn't know. And I finally told them and I was like, it was like a confession. I was like, I got to tell you something. You're not going to like, you know, me and Kelly are on food stamps. And my dad said, son, you've had a full-time job since you were 15. How much money have you put into that, into that system? And I was like hundreds of thousands of dollars. He goes, is any part of you believe it's going to be available for you when you turn 70? And I was like, no. And he's like, then what are you worried about? That's your, that's your money. You, you, the government forces you to put it aside so that if something were to ever happen, they would be able to like redistribute it to you. That's your money. Quit thinking about it as a handout. Like you've been putting into that system for years, decades. And so if you're like coming out of COVID and man, you're at that point, take all the stigma away from that and just go, just go do it. Sit in the parking lot, cry, get over it, fill out the paperwork, make sure you survive. That's good. I know you got to go, man. Uh, real quick, just uh, one more question. Uh, I don't know if I can phrase it as a certain question, but do you think that we as a society are putting too much, because you slightly touched on it, too much emphasis on the self-care, if you will, and what we associate with self-care, maybe it's reading a book, maybe it's saying, I got to go do yoga in the middle of the day and take away from the business. Are we? Where do you stand in the life? Because I'm a little bit more on the other side of like, you know what? I got to grind my way. I got to grind yeah. my way. And yes, it's going to be uncomfortable and my back hurts today maybe. And yeah, I need a massage and my head space is not right. And I take my time running to clear my head or things like that. But I sometimes feel we get distracted in teaching the younger generation, if you will, what it really takes to get to that million, two, three, four million dollars in, in growing your business. Where are you on that? Uh, yeah, I think that if you value self-care, it's, it's all about what you value and I don't knock anybody for anything. So if you value self-care in that way, the way we think modern self-care teaches it, like, Oh, you gotta go do yoga in the middle of the day so you can be your best self for the rest of the day with the business. Uh, if you value that, then go do that. You're going to get where you get in twice as much time as it would have taken if you would have ground, grinded it out. And, but you'll be happy when you get there. I'm going to get there twice as fast and spend half as much money. And I'm going to be happy when I get there. So and if we're both happy, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If you work, what I find is a challenge is that people are choosing jobs or turning down opportunities to be a part of things because there's not, it's not the right culture of self-care. Like, okay, that's fine. I'm glad you turned it down. Cause I would much rather you turn it down than like get fired because you like when you're at work, you belong to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a generation where the boss was actually the boss, not somebody who had to like cater to your feelings. Like you showed up and worked. And if you weren't working, then you didn't work anymore ever. And so that's the other end of that is like, if you want to be a self-care focused person, great. I'm probably never going to be the culture you want to be a part of. But if you want to hustle, if you want to make a difference in the world, make impact in people's lives, and you want to go a hundred miles an hour all the time, in a very, very like managed, safe environment that allows for you to be the best possible version of yourself, then all you can join any of my companies because they're going to all provide that for you. Yeah. I always think like, look, we're all different and I get that. Like different people have different goals and stuff. But whenever I hear someone say, well, I don't really need to make more money. My 
psychology on that is I might not need to make more money, but what about making more money for somebody else who can't? What about making more money for that person who's on a wheelchair that doesn't have the opportunity? What about making more money to pay off your parents' farm? What about making more money to pay off your grandma's house? But that's not a hustle problem. That's a vision problem. Okay. If you fair. get to the, yeah. if you get to the end of, I don't need to make any more money, then your dreams were too small to start with. Yeah. Or you're making something's not motivating you to progress. You know, if I, I'm good. I'm good where I'm at. I'm happy. I'm content. Contentment is this wonderful thing that people can get to. And when someone says they're content, I never even try to move them because I, God would love to be content. My content, my threshold for contentment is just much higher than most people. So it's going to take, it's going to take, I love the hustle. I'm never more content than when we're hustling and solving problems. And so I'm just built different. You and I would never be content. No, because because we live not. for the journey. Yeah, yeah. that's and, part, and, and I'm part okay of, with that. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Man, this has been fun. Thanks for letting me come on. Yeah. Okay. So real quick, how do people uh, leadfast.com? Anybody can go in there. You yeah. can sign up for the leadfast code. We're the leadfast company, so it's leadfastco.com. And where do they find you on social media? Oh, yeah, at leadfast. You can find me at uh, at Tommy underscore Wofford. But if you uh, are in Nashville. You can go to at Leadfast Nash on Instagram and join uh, and hang oh, cool. out with us. Yeah. I didn't even know that was there. Tommy, appreciate your time as always. I know you're a busy man. Yeah, we'll we'll just keep doing this. Yeah. Until we let the world know, everyone know who you are and where you are. <laughs> That's awesome. As often as you want me back, man, I'm here. Thanks again for tuning in to The Ultimate Shift. Look, I know life is crazy. Life gets busy. And we all kind of have an idea of where we want to go and where we want to end up but there's so many things that come up in between and my goal with this show is to grab one thing from every guest that we can apply to our lives that help get us closer to our end goal you can follow me on instagram at ephraim glick facebook at ephraim glick twitter at glick ephraim or you can go to the website at ephraimglick.com see you next time